I, I want to, to say a word of advice, okay? Word of advice to everyone out there, everyone who, and maybe even Grace can, can cut this and, and post it separately or whatever. In everything, in all you do, love Allah. Love Allah. If you cannot love Allah, fear Allah. Love Allah. If you cannot love Allah, fear Allah. If you love someone, you don't do what displeases them. If you love someone, you don't do what displeases them. This is a rule for your relationship with all that you love, whether it's Allah or a human being. If you love a human being, then you are sensitive towards what they like and what they don't like. There, you, it, it, is, it is not love to say, I love someone, but I don't care about their feelings. I don't care about their will. I don't care about their autonomy. I don't care about their dignity. I don't care about their self-identity. If you love someone, you care about all of that. And when you care, then you, part of what becomes your psychology is to always keep in mind what elevates that the object of your love or what degrades the object of your love, what upholds the object of your love or what undermines the object of your love. What honors the object of your love and what dishonors the object of your love. Now, when that love is directed at Allah, you're always concerned about what displeases Allah and what doesn't displease Allah. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes an inherent part of who you are. And it is often your conscience that will direct you. If you truly, if that is truly what you desire, you will find that your conscience often speaks to you very loudly and very decisively. If for whatever reason you are one of those people who cannot love when it comes to Allah, then at a minimum fear Allah. Then at a minimum try to avoid punishment. With, with understanding that that's not the ideal, that your objective, your, your, what you aspire for, is to do it out of love, not out of fear. Because out of love is inherently more dignified and more honorable and more beautiful than fear. Fear is a base feeling, but love is an elevated feeling. And it, when it comes to Allah, what can you desire more than the, what is elevated? I mean, think of, of Allah, Allah. You want to honor Allah with love, not fear. Now, the implications of this are numerous. So when someone comes to me and say, you know, can I talk to a woman or not talk to a woman? Well, you know, you know, 
at what point this conversation has slipped into something that you know puts you in a position of discomfort with Allah. You could be, think of any relationship that Allah doesn't love betrayal. Allah doesn't love traitors. Every person who have betrayed a loved one, every husband that betrayed a wife, every wife that betrayed a husband, it was preceded by acts in which they ignored this, their discomfort and they ignored their, their conscience and they ignored their relationship with Allah before they reached the act of betrayal. So, you know, every wife that has fallen in love with a man other than her husband, every husband that has fallen in love with a woman other than his wife, it was preceded by acts in which they met, they shared warm moments, they shared warm conversations, they developed a relationship before they got to the act of betrayal. If you truly loved Allah, the entire journey would have been preempted. That to me is far more meaningful. That is far more meaningful than the technicalities of do I shake hands, do I hug, do I... No, it is the issue of ultimately, are you a person that betrays? Are you a person who cheats? Allah prescribed that we should not have sex outside the bounds of a marriage, a relationship that is committed and contracted. Sex has to be within a relationship that is committed and contracted. There is a commitment and that commitment is affirmed with a contract. And that contract is witnessed, has witnesses. We call that a marriage contract. Now, before you ever get to the point where you are in a position where you might have sex outside the bounds of a relationship that is committed and contracted, you have engaged in activities that your conscience has, alar has was, was, alarmed you against but you ignored that. And that to me is what matters. When I see the rate of divorce among Muslims, it saddens me because they often have a lot of technical questions, but the ultimate moral question of betrayal and commitment is ignored. All matters. Love Allah. And if you love Allah, you don't want to displease Allah. And Allah loves commitment. Allah loves trust. Allah doesn't love betrayal. Allah doesn't love insecurity. Allah loves justice and equity. You know what Allah loves. And you know what Allah doesn't love. And don't kid yourself. No amount of law can change the moral status of things. At a minimum, at a minimum, fear Allah. Because you don't want to be punished. 
But Allah is worth more than that. If you truly want to dignify Allah in your life, Allah is worth more than fear. Allah is worthy of more than fear. Okay, so maybe to underscore, you must have known what the next question was. <laughs> no, it's actually not. But see, this is this is where like the divine guidance comes in, right? So I now I have a question. It's like, okay, should I ask this or this? And then what he talked about, it's like, okay, it's clear what the next question should be. <laughs> so, um, Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. I am an unmarried person who is trying to understand marriage. One matter is still disturbing me, and as a female, I feel betrayed about love between spouses. <laughs> it seems that spousal love is only for good times. If bad things befall a married couple, for example, a wife has become chronically ill, termini terminally ill, or her body is disfigured or changed due to disease, accident, or other reasons, and as a side effect of treatment, value of her is decreased in the eyes of the husband. People may suggest polygamy for the husband in these cases, or the husband may cheat or leave her. All of these matters break a wife's heart. What is the Islamic ruling about these situations? Does a, does a wife deserve loyalty from her husband, even if her beauty is lost? You know, we here we really get people often... Let me let me clarify something about the nature of law. Law tells you what is the minimum that is required of you. But beyond law is ihsan. Ihsan is what ethically is required of you. A lot of people think that some simply because something is permitted by law that that defines ihsan. And no, that's not, that's not at all true. So for instance, Allah tells us, what is jaza'ul ihsan? What is the moral response that Allah, towards, Allah wants towards goodness or kindness? وَمَا جَزَاءُ الْإِحْسَانِ إِلَّا الْإِحْسَانِ Allah expects that kindness and goodness be recompensed, be returned with kindness and goodness. Now, can the law, can the law articulate that in terms of legal rules? Not necessarily, no. Because the law only tells you the outer boundaries of things. But the substantive meaning of things is left to moral values and ethical values. So, and I've seen this in, in many real-life cases, many, many real-life cases. A woman, after 20 years or 30 years of marriage, a woman starts getting old. I've actually several divorce cases like this. The man decides after 30 years of marriage that they're going to go back to Pakistan, marry a young girl, bring her to the United States, and he tells his wife, okay, either you can accept being my second wife in secret, 
in other words, not, not officially, not formally, or I'll divorce you and go figure out, you know, it's not my problem. And they come to say, well, doesn't Allah, Allah allow me to do this because is there anything that is, tell, can you point to any law that says that I can't do this? And the answer is no, I, don't, I can't point to any law that tells you that you can't do this. Because the law, that's not the role of the law. The law is simply defining the minimum. The minimum. But beyond the law is ihsan. I can tell you that Allah has repeatedly said that jaza'ul ihsan al-ihsan. That the kindness and commitment of your wife for 30 years should only be answered with kindness and commitment. And the fact that you treat her that way is contrary to justice and equity. And if it's contrary to justice and equity, regardless of what the law says, you are going to be held responsible in the hereafter for your lack of justice and equity. Law does not replace morality. Law does not define taqwa. Taqwa, taqwa al-qulub, is, is something that is beyond the law. It is the realm of beauty, of ihsan, of goodness itself. So I've seen also, I mean, I, I had, there was a case where this Egyptian guy, after 30, 40 years of marriage, he... Uh, um, 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 developed um, Alzheimer's. And when he developed his Alzheimer's, his wife basically dumped him and said, you're not my problem. And she, you know, went to court, got 50% of the property, divorced him, and then eventually picked up and went back to Egypt. Again, legally, yes, she could get the divorce. But morally, she's an immoral person. And that's what I told her. She said, oh, isn't it my right to divorce my husband if, if, if he can't uh, perform the functions of husband? He now has Alzheimer's. But nevertheless... I submitted to her that she is responsible before Allah because she betrayed kindness and she abandoned a person in need. And that is provided for by morality, not by law. And that is one of the big problems with Muslims is because they get their law from imams Imams don't understand the difference between law and morality. Imams, because they're not trained and they're not sophisticated and they're not intelligent, they think that law defines morality. So they think just because the law says you can do it, it means, khalas, there are no moral consequences. Absolutely not. So my response to you is that whether it's a man or a woman, 
it is your responsibility what happens to your partner after years of sacrifice and years of the ba'dukum ila ba'd of the ba'dukum ila ba'd there is a mithaq ghaliz there is a serious covenant that you took before Allah when you shared this life and there is a moral commitment that was formed and that for a person to abandon their partner in need is a moral failure and it's a moral failure that is not defined by law but defined by morality and but defined by taqwa and defined by your understanding of the divine and what the divine expects through the principles of justice and equity and ihsan and goodness and so this this is one of the key elements that is why love is so important it's so important that we always understand that relationships either relationships with the divine or relationship with one another must always be built on love because without love we become simply detached negotiators of our own self-interest and when our self-interest is no longer served by a set of circumstances we feel free to declare ourselves free of obligation and free of commitments and that is a very serious problem i mean one of the things that really troubles me i've known so many imams in so many mosques that use their position as imams to enter and exit out of marriages like it's a roller coaster how could these be imams if they don't understand what love is how can they love their community how can they represent their community they don't understand what love is they don't understand what commitment is they don't understand the nature of justice justice a critical concept for any moral human being and especially a moral muslim and if their own conduct does not embody justice then how can i be taking my islam from them so you know you point to and and my advice to every woman when you select your partner select your partner on the basis of moral qualities on the basis of what they what their their relationship to justice and their their understanding of god as a just god who loves justice god as a merciful god who loves justice mercy i often tell men in this situation okay so you're going to dump your your wife uh, i mean and there have been situations where the wife has 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 never been never employed outside the home and basically a divorce is going to put her on welfare and the abandonment is total i mean because it it's basically no work experience uh you know if they leave, even if they leave her in her home she's 
puts her in a horrible, horrible situation. And then I told him, in what sense is this merciful? You understand Allah is merciful and loves mercy. In what sense is this merciful? And if your understanding as yourself as a Muslim is that I am not bound by the obligation to be merciful, then what do I tell you? Then how are you a good Muslim? I, you know, it, it, it really confounds me. Women are not objects. Women are partners. And you share with them a sacred bond. And that sacred bond is a full commitment towards mercy and justice and equity and beauty. Both of you together are obligated to, to have that union produce justice and equity and beauty and kindness to embody it for your children and for society. That's what a marital unit is. Now, there is a serious rupture when one partner starts looking at the other as a commodity. Basically, well, you can't perform, so I'm done. No amount of law can forgive this. No amount of law can excuse this. And no amount of legalists can somehow make this okay. It's not okay. Uh, we, we get this situation, by the way, in real life. I've had this situation occur numerous times with women who develop breast cancer. And they have to have, uh, what is that? The mastectomy. mastectomy. And then, you know, well, the, the husband, well, now I can't have, you know, I, I can't have sex with her because it grosses me out. I mean, I'm talking about real life situations that have come up many times. Uh, now, okay, well, I can't, you know, either I, she accepts I take a second wife or I have to divorce her. It's ugly. And then the man says, well, you know, does Allah want to expect me, Allah expect me to sacrifice my pleasures? Well, in the same way Allah sent that, that affliction to the woman, Allah sent the affliction to you. It's a test for you and her, both. And if your reaction to that is to say, well, I'm going to look after my own best interests and basically the hell with her, you failed that test. That test was not just directed at her. And it's, it's our attitude towards this world. Are we entitled to enjoyment and pleasure in this world or do you understand this world as a test and the real enjoyment comes in the hereafter? The real life is in the hereafter, not this world. That attitude defines whether you are willing to sacrifice in this world or not. Because if you truly you know, think you, if you really don't have Iman, you want to maximize your pleasures in this world because you don't really believe that there is another world which is the real life, where you actually get to really live, not this world. Choose your partners carefully. Choose your partners carefully. You, you know, uh, no misery equals the misery of when you end up in a relationship that is all wrong. 
people, you know, their lives become shambles when they end up in partnerships that they shouldn't have entered into. And they're very hard to fix and very hard to, to, to reform course. So choose your partners carefully. Uh, this question is related um, in a bit, so maybe you want to add to the nuance of it. Um, it says, in the Quran, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, believe in me and be kind to your parents. Um, is the concept of kindness a general concept that takes precedence over other virtues in Islam? Does the importance of being kind extend and apply to others beyond parents too? For example, is it better in Islam to be kind? Is it better to be kind? than to be right or correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a good question, but um, yes, the, the Quran in many contexts um, makes clear that that forgiveness, and the term we use actually is ihsan, um, that Ihsan is an elevated moral status because when you forgive and when you are kind and when you forgo your right to exacting measure for measure, in other words, when you say, yes, I, am, I have a right to this or that, but I, out of Ihsan, I'm going to forgive it. I'm going to forgo it. Your reward is with Allah. Allah rewards you for that. And so for a real believer, obtaining your rights on this earth is inferior to being rewarded in the hereafter. And so yes, there are many situations where you can insist on on measure for measure, you know, I, I, this, these are my rights and I want my rights. But to transcend that and to say for, uh, for purposes of compassion, for purposes of mercy, for purposes of kindness, for whatever purposes, I will forgo what I am technically entitled to in order to be a muhsin to 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 do what would please Allah and what I would be rewarded for in the hereafter is always superior. So yes, it transcends the parents, and the Quran makes that very clear that in so many situations, Allah describes that though describes those who are able to forego their rights to forgive and to extend kindness as a people of high status and of people who have obtained wisdom. Um, but of course, you know, we, we recognize that that's a, a challenge for, for in many situations, I mean, because people struggle with their base selves and they're not always able to reach that higher level but it should always be an aspiration. Um, at a minimum, is justice. You cannot go beyond justice unless you achieve justice. So I'll give you a, a, a lot of authoritarian governments 
will come and say, I'm not going to give you your rights. Why aren't you going to give me my rights? Because Allah said that if you are truly wise, you would forgo your rights and you would forgive. That's not ihsan. That's coercion. And that's despotism and that's oppression. When, you, when people give up their rights, not out of choice, but out of compulsion, that's not ihsan. First is justice. Then it is up to the individual whether they want to go beyond justice, what the state is obligated, what the law is obligated to achieve is justice. But the option must always remain open to go beyond justice. And that's a moral aspiration. And that's what we call ihsan. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We're back. All right. The time just flies when we're having fun, right? <laughs> it's already almost 8 o'clock. Um, I just want to ask you how, how you're feeling and how much longer, if you want to go like one or two more questions. Yeah, uh, maybe till 8.30. 8.30? Woo, okay. <laughs> I know, right? Okay. Alhamdulillah. All right, so um, I just actually I want to comment. Somebody made a comment about um, sound quality um, on the YouTube. And I just wanted to point out, um, you know, obviously the sound quality is not going to be great when we're live streaming. So, um, but we have like, for example, these microphones. And so often, you know, even with the chutbahs, I record um, for higher sound quality. I go back and I edit. So I, you know, make boost the sound quality in the recorded version that will be uploaded later. So if you are sharing this or you want to hear it again, you know, then the sound quality actually will be much better, um, inshallah. And actually, I should take the time to give a shout out um, to thank Rami Youssef because he donated this to boost our sound quality. And that actually connects to the next question. But let me also say season two of Rami is out. And so please watch it. It's amazing. And alhamdulillah, I actually was really happy to know that um, well, I don't want to give away too much, but there were a couple of things like a dog that appears in the issue that was definitely, I think, inspired by our love for dogs here. So there's some other stuff too that, I mean, I, alhamdulillah, I think that we have, the professor's imprint is on it a little bit and I, I got confirmation from one of my connections there. So alhamdulillah, anyway, it's awesome. So please watch it, share it. Um, it's controversial, yes, and a lot of people are gonna have issues with it, but um, I think for, for our audience, I think it's really important to think about issues, talk about issues and that kind of stuff. So this next question actually, is from another artist. So I thought this was very beautiful. So actually I'm gonna read a little bit more of his, of his email. So he says, a couple nights ago, I finally remembered to watch the conversation between you, the professor, and Rami Youssef. I was so, so struck by the beauty of this meeting of intellects and sensibilities. The conversation was wonderful and probing, but also I was brought to tears by the professor's dua at the end for Rami and his conviction that we must love our artists. It made me want to reach out and ask a question to the professor related to my own work as an artist. So please forgive me for how long it takes to get to the question. I'm a writer of short stories. I've had work published in several literary magazines. I'm working on a book length project. Um, as someone who deeply believes in art's ability to push dialogue and furthermore create experiences that change how one engages the world, I think a lot about issues of justice, ethics, and Islam. 
I often write in a genre called speculative fiction, which is like science fiction or other genres that use non-mundane realities. So think magic, supernatural, paranormal, etc. My stories specifically involve Muslims, politics, spiritual practices, but also mix the speculative. For example, um, okay, well, I don't want to give too much about the person, so... Um, in all my stories of this kind, the speculative elements serve as metaphors or vehicles to explore issues of ethics, justice, and the human condition as per my life experiences and understanding of Islam. I obviously make no claim that the stories reflect the physical laws of reality. These are, after all, works of imaginative fiction. It's also worth noting that these stories offer an interpretation that the more magical parts are psychological, a tension that's quite common in fiction. My intention in all of this is to articulate an Islamic consciousness that explores all that the Asuli Institute is interested in and to do so as richly and evocatively as possible using the tools of fiction. What is the professor's opinion on this kind of art? Is it okay to use speculative elements in this way? Okay, well, one, first, I'm, I'm dying to read the work of this uh, writer. Um, and I'm actually uh, jealous. Um, a lot of people don't know that when I was uh, much younger, I my big struggle was between the study of law and being a writer. And I was, I used to write short stories and um, longer stories. And I always imagined that I would eventually become a fiction writer, but the, the the law is a jealous bride. The profession of law is really a jealous bride. And my involvement with law swallowed up my life and left no room for poetry and fiction. And so, um, but... So far... <laughs> yeah, Grace has always told me that, you know, go back and write fiction. It's just, it's... Uh, I want uh, him to write a novel on Muslim exorcisms. <laughs> that's what she's always... For the record. Um, listen, uh, not only art is very important, but art was always important. A lot of people... A lot of people neglect the fact or or overlook the fact that in the Islamic civilization, look at the way that the enduring works of literature were produced. You know, when you talk about books like Kalila and Dimna, Kalila wa Dimna, or um, A Thousand and One Nights, or um, the work that Mar Michael Cooperson just translated to, to English, um, his most, if you look up Michael Cooperson, you'll, you'll find his most recent publication. Uh, I, I forgot, the, I, it, I'm blanking out on the name of the work, but uh, the element of fantasy in the Islamic civilization always involved fantasy and speculation. You you always found jinn in in these narratives, the 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 rather prominent role of jinn, the rather prominent role of animals, talking animals and speaking animals, and animals being the embodiment of wisdom, 
like, for instance, A Conference of the Birds, uh, one of the most famous works that moderns don't read anymore. Um, we translated, we translated a lot of our ideas beyond law and beyond philosophy into the realm of storytelling and, and fiction. And when you look at Arabic poetry or Islamic poetry, whether the poetry that was produced in Persian or the poetry produced in Arabic or the poetry produced in Urdu, you find quite often this prominent role of, of speculation and fiction to the, to the and, and even exaggeration. So a lot of Islamic poets, for instance, write profusely about intoxication and and alcohol and being intoxicated, like like people who are drunk. And the fact is that the vast majority of these people never drank, never knew what wine, I mean the actual drinking of wine or but they they used intoxication as a metaphor, often for metaphor for love, often for metaphor for so this is we have fallen behind in in so many fields among those fields uh, in literature so even in the muslim world all the writers of fiction have tended to be secularized in other words they leave the religious element out the pietistic element out and write their stories as if piety doesn't exist, with very few exceptions, with rare exceptions. Um, they, it's as if they step in the framework of Western civilization in, in order to produce works of fiction, which is unfortunate and, and has left uh, art is what tempers the soul. Art is what challenges the claims of law and interrogates law. Art is what allows the soul to wander, and wandering is, is critical for the health of the human soul. A human soul that doesn't dream anymore, it, it starts dying. And art is the vehicle by which we, we dream and we explore possibilities. So do what you're doing with the aspiration of exploring. No one, ex no one expects a writer of fiction to speak authoritatively about the divine world, will. What they are doing quite often when they write fiction is they pose questions. And a wise society, a wise people, would take these questions very seriously. Because Allah created the heart of the artist for a reason. Allah, if Allah would have willed, Allah would have made us all lawyers or all philosophers, but that's not what Allah has willed. And Allah gave this creative ability to a class of people 
in my view, to act as the conscience of society, to act as the conscience of society, to raise difficult questions that the practitioners of law and the practitioners of philosophy ignore at their own peril. So go forward. May Allah bless your endeavor and raise these difficult questions. And I, you know, again, if, if Muslims are able to challenge their colonized mentalities, they will embrace people like you. And they will celebrate people who, who, who ask these difficult questions of society in the form of art. Alhamdulillah. Okay. So we have received a few different questions on this topic, and I think we also cover it in an upcoming episode of Mito and Baba. So I'll just put that out there. <laughs> I've got one in my back pocket, but it's been a while. So, um, okay. So the question concerns, um, and I'll read this. My question concerns the scientific theories of evolution versus creationism and the relationship between them through the lens of Islam. When I imagine the evolution of planet Earth, I imagine hot lava flowing, ice ages, supercontinents and their breaking up, tectonic plates rubbing, mountains rising, lakes drying and valleys forming, islands sinking to the bottom of the ocean while other land masses eventually rise from the sea floor, the extinction of some species and the rapid evolution of new species, nonverbal cavemen who eventually discover the wheel, massive predators, creatures like dinosaurs, and then bam, modern day humans existing on present Earth. How did we come to be in that history and how did it all unfold on one planet and why? Because when I recount just a fraction of this planet's known history, it starts to feel like the stars are less than just decoration in the sky for humans. Some questions that circle my mind are, when Allah created Adam and Eve, did dinosaurs still roam the earth? Were they given the authority to name all the animals on the planet as I was taught in Islamic school? And if so, are they the same animals that exist today? Are we descendants of slowly evolved cavemen who eventually discovered the wheel and learned the protection of fire, or have we always existed in our present form? Lastly, when something like mummified cavemen from at least 3500 BC with vocal cords far different than present day humans are discovered, what impact do those scientific discoveries have on our view of creationism in Islam? And does it mean that this human existed without being tested in this life like modern humans are, and without the knowledge of Allah or the proper proper vocal cords to even use language to talk about God. And someone else wrote, you know, what's your view of evolution? So, Listen, the, the theory of evolution itself doesn't necessarily um, exclude God. I mean, even if it is true that things evolved the way that um, modern narratives about evolution claim. The fact is that this evolution could very well be directed by an intelligent maker. And Allah tells us, Allah gives many indications throughout the Quran that in fact, the way that the earth and heavens were created were not an overnight, it wasn't just an, an instant, but in fact there was a dynamic. And in fact Allah tells us that um, 
<laughs> there was first the creation of the, the, the elixir of life, water. And then from water, all types of things evolved. Now, in the Islamic tradition itself, by the way, there are a lot of narratives, and that's a very big question about the, the, you know, what's authentic, what's not authentic, and all of that. Narratives that the, that the earth itself, before Adam and Eve, was inhabited. And there are indications that some Islamic narratives say that it was inhabited by jinn and animals, other Islamic narratives say that it was inhabited by animals. Now, they don't call these animals dinosaurs, they just call them animals. But so that in itself is not a problem for the Islamic tradition. Um, it is quite possible that Allah had created the earth and this earth was full of beings. These beings are dinosaurs, maybe jinn, we don't know. And then a new chapter begins. Um, and also, if you reread the ayat on Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve are the beginning of a certain type of human, but not the only type of human. So if you read these ayat carefully, you see that they do not necessarily preclude the possibility that there were other intelligent like creatures, creatures with a level of intelligence. Now, what, le what level of intelligence creates a taklif, an obligation to know the maker? Well, let me simplify this. We know from Allah, from the Quran, that those who do not have a choice in other words, the, the choice to believe or not believe in the maker. We are told that the birds, the animals, the trees, the plants, everything on earth, everything that is created by Allah, acknowledge the maker. That they do tasbih, but you don't understand their tasbih. So, they are either anchored in instinct or anchored in choice. If they're anchored in instinct, then there is no taklif, there's no accountability for failure to, ex to correctly exercise your choice. If they're anchored in choice, free will, then that's where accountability steps in. So, you know, when you read about and and I you know I've read I've read both books that are pro evolution and I've read the modern scientists that point to various holes and inconsistencies in the theory of evolution, but as a Muslim, I don't need, I don't feel like my so much turns on resolving this question. Um, Evolution answers, and especially the process of natural selection, which is theoretically distinct from evolution. I mean, the, the, 
there are a lot of things in the theory of natural selection. A lot of questions are not answered. Both in the creation of various forms of species and in the creation of more developed and sophisticated species. And a lot of the links that are found between one species and a hypothesis of development of that species to another is can very uh, um, um, speculative. It's based really on conjecture, not hard empirical evidence. So as a Muslim, I believe that when an animal adapts to its environment, it adapts because of Allah's will. When an, when an insect becomes camouflaged like a leaf or a tree, while another insect doesn't, both are the product of Allah's will. When an insect builds a hive and another insect doesn't build a hive and builds a, a cobweb, or another lives underground and another lives in a tree, all of that is driven by the divine will. That this remarkable variety in the manifestation of living is a product of a magnanimous creator who drives all of that. Now, science then produces these skeletons of beings that, you know, uh, stood semi-erect, that had a certain skull size, that had certain jaw features, and science then draws conjecturally speculations about the brain capacity, about the feeding habits, about the cultural practices of these beings. What science often will not answer is whether these beings had free choice or instinct. If their instinct, they belong to the realm of animal. And I think if, if there were Muslims who were actually engaged in these sciences, you would have find very much like when you read the, the Christian challenges to theories of evolution. And I'm talking about scientific challenges, not the science. Those who have a Christian theology, committed to a Christian theological outlook, challenging the science of evolution from a scientific perspective, I think a lot of Muslims could have produced that type of work if, in fact, there were enough Muslim scientists who were engaged in this field, who were interested in examining the evidence from the perspective of an Islamic tradition. Because they surely exist in, a Christian, in the Christian world and in the Jewish world. I mean, and, uh, uh, I mean their, their, their books are are available and, and easily accessible. So, again, to reiterate, Adam and Eve 
are the first human beings that are accountable that inherited deputyship from the divine. They were the first to be contracted by God as the deputies of God on earth. But it doesn't mean that they are the first beings to be created. Beings, whether ape-like or more human-like, might and could have existed before, but they're not the object of taklif. Furthermore, a lot of our speculations about brain size and brain capacity are challenged by, you know, if uh, one of the things that I, I'm not, you know, I read for fun, to be honest with you, but, you know, the, the people who write a lot about ancient uh, astronauts and ancient aliens who basically find the historical evidence of the progress of technology sufficiently inconsistent that the only solution they find is, well, it must have been that there were aliens on Earth that then, you know, left us and went away. And it's intriguing to, to read this material because, in fact, they often point out the pieces of evidence that scientists, uh, that challenges the, scientific, the, the, the comforts of scientific orthodoxy. And I know enough from my colleagues at UCLA about the tyranny of scientific orthodoxy. That I know that in the, the biology department and some parts of the, uh, anthropology, that if you say certain things, you become immediately become ostracized within the academic community, regardless of the type of evidence that you, you know, and I have friends that talk to me at length about how there are so many holes and so many gaps and so many um, ruptures in the narrative that, that there are not adequate answers to, but that there is a certain scientific fanatic orthodoxy that has been imposed. Um, What is wonderful about the text of the Quran is that it is entirely consistent with the idea that life on earth was created in stages. And that it was a dynamic, evolving process, a process of creation directed by the divine. But also that anything that relies on instinct for its survival is not going to be held accountable the way that any being that has volition. Now, who has volition? Human beings and what we call jinn. Where are the jinn? The only honest answer is we don't know. Are they on earth? Yes. Are shadow men, as they call them in the field of paranormal, jinn? Yes. Are the UFOs that we see in the sky and we capture on film many, many times and that the U.S. military has captured and first leaked the video of UFOs and then admitted that they filmed the UFOs, 
Are those jinn? Yes. Is it possible that the jinn have other planets that they live in? Absolutely. What prevents that possibility? Do you, I mean, when Allah tells us repeatedly in the Quran that Allah has honored human beings as part of Allah's creation, but Allah tells us, Allah creates what you do not know. What you do not know. Does that include the possibility of other nations, other dimensions, other beings? Absolutely. Why do we assume that we are it? Allah says that the stars are part decoration, part for our use for navigation, but also Allah warns us or alerts us in Surah Al-Jan, read Surah Al-Jan, that the stars have functions that we don't understand. At a minimum, when Allah says that the jinn used to go to the, reach the throne of the divine and spy, and that Allah put an end to it. Wow, okay, that's a realm we know nothing about. Jinn spying on the divine throne and something going on between angels and jinn. And where are these worlds? It is only human hubris that makes human beings think that it all begins and ends with them. After the hereafter, is it possible that Allah will create a million earths with a million other inhabitants? Can you prevent? Can you say that no, Allah will not? No one can. Our role is to understand that. As Allah tells us, every bird, every being, everything, whether it is crawls on the ground or flies in the heavens, does so with the divine with it. Allah is with us wherever we are. But Allah is also with every being. And we, when we look at a tree, we look at a mountain, we are looking at something that supplicates Allah. And that is why we should honor it and not use it as if it is just there for our consumption. It has a right to exist. It supplicates Allah. So you cannot just chop a tree down for fun. You, then you've transgressed upon Allah. You cannot blow up a mountain just to have fun. Because that mountain is a living being supplicating Allah. The entire earth supplicates Allah. And I'll tell you one thing from the realm of not sciences but piety. First you start out by believing that Allah is with you wherever you are. Allah is with you wherever you are. Then you also believe that everything in existence supplicates and is cognizant of Allah either by instinct or by volition. 
then volition, then you can make the choice, I want to ignore Allah. That's what volition is. But then what happens is eventually your perception of things change. So when you see plants and you see the ground and you see the plant and, and you see the mountains and you see the water and you see the rivers and you see the stars, you actually nearly feel their life. You actually feel their life. In the same way I feel the life of my dogs who are in my home. And then you realize that you are here sharing this world by the permission of the divine and that you must honor and respect their place as they have honored and respected your place. And that is a wonderful feeling. And by the way, that is the feeling that existed in ancient societies that you find among Native Americans and you find among the Aztecs and the Incas and you find among ancient societies that awareness of existence before modern empiricism dis disconnected human beings from the life of the earth and the life of existence. We empiricists are the aberration. We are the weird ones, not them. Because th those who spend time staring at the skies and staring at nature, it eventually dawned on them, whether they were Muslim or not Muslim, how everything is living, everything breathes, Everything nearly talks, speaks. It is we moderns with our reliance on modern technology that became an aberration and became the weirdos, not them. It is important to keep that in mind as we approach modern sciences because it, it would give us a little bit of humility a very critical humility uh, because the path we are taking is a path of destruction. I mean, the, the way we are using earth, transgressing upon the rights of animals and plants and living things is leading us to a disastrous route. And I don't believe that Allah will save us from that disastrous path, but will let us suffer the consequences of our actions because we deserve it as human beings. Alhamdulillah. Thank you so much. Okay, so I'm always a bit in this quandary because it's almost 8.30. That was such a beautiful answer that it's almost like it leaves us in a, in a place where it's almost like, okay, maybe this is a good place to end things. So we kind of end in this beautiful, deep ocean of knowledge. But I don't really want it to end, and I do have a couple more questions. <laughs> and so I'm not gonna, I don't have any big, like, philosophical questions, but 
maybe we have to have a tradition in our Q and A's that every Q and A has to have like we talked we touched upon the paranormal. We need a nail polish kind of question, right? So the nail polish question will kind of ease us back into the real world. Sorry, we have to leave this world of beauty and piety. But okay, so here's the nail polish question for this issue. Okay, sorry. Um, is it mandatory for men to keep a beard in Islam? No. <laughs> no. Can we just leave it at that? No. <laughs> no, I mean, it, 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 it's... You know, I could give you a long jurisprudential response um, why it's not... Uh, but the, the the gist of it is that all the traditions we have about beards, um, they don't rise to the level of taklif. And even if they rise to the level of taklif, they, they're illa, they're, they, they're bound to a cultural question that existed at the time of the Prophet and the companions. And that for that time, and any man who did not have a beard meant that that man, if, if you were a man and you were beardless, you were either not Muslim, so you were Christian, um, but although a lot of Jews and Christians did grow their beards. But the other thing is that you, it was an indication that you were a castrato, you were castrated, that you, were, you had slave status. And there is a lot of evidence that if you were also an unbearded man, that you were probably among those who um, uh, were into male prostitution. So there was a universe of meanings. If, if I would see an unbearded man in society and they're old enough to have a beard, if they could be young enough not to have a beard, but if they're old enough not to have a beard, then I would say to myself, oh, well, either they're Christian and they're, they work with the church, or they're a slave, and if they're slave, they're castrato, castrated. And if they're castrato, they're probably being used by homosexuals as a male prostitute. Or often it was a sign you, you are declaring that I am available for homosexual sex. This universe of meanings have changed. And that is why Azhari sheikhs, for instance, you will find many, many, many sheikhs from Azhar without a beard. In fact, there is a tradition among Quranic reciters, those who, who graduate from Azhar, who um, recite Quran, like Abdul Basit al-Manshawi al-Husari. Uh, al-Husari actually was bearded, but Abdul Basit al-Manshawi were not. 
Tablawi was not. I mean, many, many Quranic reciters and those who do dhikr and ittihal, they're not bearded. And the reason that they were not bearded is that it became, it, it communicated a different meaning. They commu- it communicated that they belonged to an Azhari practice that adopted certain regalia to indicate their status. And among that regalia was to be not bearded. So beard or not beard, it's, it's so culturally bound. And jurists, other than, and Wahhabi jurists, by the way, have all changed their position overnight because the king told them, wants to. So for a long time, we had the, you know, the exception was the Wahhabi jurists who were telling us, you have to have a beard. And then suddenly they have MBS and they wake up one morning and they discover that, no, you don't have to have a beard overnight. Anyway, um, but the truth of the matter is it's very culturally bound. And the, the reason that I grow is that uh, it's not, I'm not declaring piety and I'm not declaring, um, but I am more comfortable with it. I mean, I don't expect to be rewarded by Allah for, for growing a beard. And it, it's and at this point, a beard or not beard, um, I I don't think it's part of the, the divine will. I mean, it's a stretch to try to inject it as part of the divine will. That's my own personal opinion. Now, if you if you but I I respect those who disagree with that, and those who say no, I I believe that Allah wants me to grow a beard, and I will grow a beard because I want to do what Allah wants me to do, and I respect that. I mean, and I pray that Allah rewards them in, 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 in consistent with their intentions. But in the same way, you know, I, I don't think that Allah will punish those who don't grow a beard. Um, I, I don't think that they're, they're declaring anything about prostitution. I don't think that they're declaring anything about being Christian. I don't think that they're trying to say we're not Muslim or, you know, so the, the, the universe of meanings that were attached to beard or no beard have changed um, quite seriously. And sometimes, it's, uh, uh, for instance, as if uh, when you exist in an oppressive society, uh, like if you're in Egypt or, or Syria or something, it might be wise not to grow a beard because... Um, the security forces put you on the radar once they see that you have a beard. Okay, I know it's it's eight thirty. I have a short one. That I think is important. Okay, I, I have two, but let's <laughs> okay. see how you feel. Okay, okay. go. <laughs> um, this one has to do with um, COVID nineteen um, regarding the threat of contracting COVID nineteen via the distribution and handling of Kurbani meat. Is it allowed this one time only to give money equivalent to a Kurbani share to deserving people so that no one gets exposed to the deadly disease? Since I eat a- yeah, this, this is an important issue. People um, do not risk... The fiqh on this, I think that any jurist worth their salt will give you the, the following response. If 
the Qurbani meat is basically the, the meat in, in uh, Eid al-Adha from the Uthiyah when, when you slaughter the Uthiyah and then you distribute the meat. If doing so is going to put you at risk of being infected, uh, distribute money and not the meat. That, that's a very clear issue. And there are a lot of precedents for suspending the Uthiyah in Eid al-Adha um, because of the outbreak of a plague or um, um, uh, or what is the word I'm looking for? A pandemic. A pandemic. Uh, so that that and it's and it's only jurists who don't know the precedents who will give you a different answer. That is a clear matter. Do not put your yourself or your family at risk. You can donate the money equal to the the worth of the uthiya without taking that risk. But that's an important question, considering the Eid al-Adha is coming up. Is that it? I have one more, but... Okay, sure. <laughs> okay. Okay, guys, so this one's a little bit embarrassing, but I'm actually posing it because one of our key values is there's no embarrassment in religion, so, and that we, you know, that important questions arise that you can't get answered anywhere else, and since you're all here with us at the end, this is the bonus question for hanging all the way through. I, I assume that people who are still with us are, like, hardcore and can handle this without... Too much embarrassment. Um, okay. Um, the professor said that masturbation is allowed in a previous Q&A. This may get too personal or sensitive, but what are the boundaries allowed in doing it? I know, of course, stuff like porn is banned, but say someone has a particular fetish, like attractive feet or pregnant women, and looks at, say, images of fake feet or fake pregnant women. Would that go over the boundaries? I'm not sure where, where, not to make light of a situation, but I'm not sure you get pictures of fake feet and fake pregnant women. I mean, the, 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 um, I mean, it, it's, it, it poses an interesting question, right? Because what if in, in pornography, it's people that take off their clothes and, um, do things but what if normally pictures of feet are not considered pornography because nor i mean for the the average person feet are not an, an object of arousal it could be the other one the, the opposite you know um uh, or even a, a picture of you know, just a pregnant woman in dressed in uh, in regular attire um, which actually, I mean, it, it goes back to this whole issue of how personal sexuality is and how private sexuality is. I want to underscore this because we live in a civilization that has attempted to take sexuality out of the realm of the private into the realm of the public where people identify their worth and their character and their, 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 their sense of self through their sexuality and through their public sharing of sexuality. 
which is twisted in so many different ways. Sexuality is extremely private and extremely individual and specific. And it should remain in the realm of the private, in the same way that it's no one's business, you know, how many times you have sex with your wife. That should not be something you go and share with the public. It should never be a topic of conversation. Or what you find arousing with your spouse or not find arousing. Or whether you, you know, find uh, some people are aroused by masochism or by um, the use of what's the word I'm looking for where people whip each other. S&M or bondage. Oh, yeah, like uh, um, um, S&M and bondage and so on. That should never go from the realm of the private to the realm of the public. If that is highly private, and this is maybe something we can talk about in another context, but to going back to the question specifically of masturbation, uh, as long as first, why is why the question of masturbation allowed or not allowed? If masturbation is a release in order to not commit the haram of fornication, that's the whole idea. Is that? And, and that's something where you have to be honest with yourself and with your God. If masturbation becomes an object in itself, because sometimes people become addicted to masturbation to the point that it replaces the need for intimacy or the need for marriage. And they, they, some people, that it becomes such a problem that when they marry, they can't stop masturbating because they've gotten accustomed to that being the source of their pleasure. Masturbation should always be a release so that you, as the fuqaha would say it, that you are basically obtaining release so that you do not commit the haram or that you can free your mind from its the pressure of sexual desire so that you can go on with your life. So it is not an object in itself. It is something that is done so that you can attain higher things. Now, fetishes are very personal, and they're very specific, and very individual. And we know that sexuality is formed very early on, what we call fetishes, which is what the, the elements of arousal and sexuality, are formed very on, very early on in the psychology of human beings, that it is very difficult to change or revise. I mean, why do people get, some people get aroused by feet? Why do people get aroused by bondage? something happens early on in the psychology and it is not something that is going to be changed through counseling or so treatment and so on. So when, what is the expression that person used? Um, fake or not fake? Uh, fetish, attractive feet, pregnant women, 
looking at images of fake feet or fake pregnant Yeah, I mean, what I've known in, in some have done in the past, um, I actually knew a guy a long time, it's a long story, but he was in Egypt, who would draw feet and... And I just and, and and he would draw so many feet, and then eventually he told me that this is like that he can't marry a woman unless he scrutinizes her feet because feet is the make it and break it thing with him. And of course, can you imagine? I mean, he had a hard problem time because when he would propose to women, you know, he would want to see their feet. And for Egyptian society, it was very weird. You know, why do you want me to take off my shoes and socks? So you can stare at my feet. And and then, of course, you know, the jurist part in me, well, that's unfair because his fetish is feet. What if someone else's fetish is something that is much more intimate than feet? Well, they don't get to examine it. So why do you get to examine feet? It's, there's an element of unfairness here. But that's how jurist thinks. That, 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 that's an issue for fuqaha. I mean, is it fair to let them see feet while other people can't see other body parts that they have a fetish you know you, you get the picture so as far as i can tell the, the 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 juristic part of me drawing images of feet or looking at images of feet or pregnancy um is there is nothing haram that I can point to in that. If that's what's going to produce the sexual release. I do want to alert you, though, that keep in mind that there are certain fetishes that make a marriage very difficult. So the, the pregnant fetish, for instance, um, I actually knew one situation where a guy who was only aroused by pregnancy. So when his wife was pregnant, he was very intimate. But when his wife was not pregnant, he was not very intimate. And this eventually leads to a divorce. And I wondered if this person would have tried to at least see, explore if there is a way to adjust that fetish before marriage um, by through medical experts. Because I asked him, have you ever talked to a psychologist or a psychiatrist? And he said no. And I think it would have been the fair thing to do for his wife was have, would at least to make the attempt to try to get that fetish addressed or adjusted and upon entering a marriage I think he owed it to his wife to tell her at the very beginning that this is my fetish because it could be that she would find it I mean he said that at one point he asked his wife to pretend to be pregnant uh, to put to wear a, a pillow and she didn't want to do it. She she thought that she didn't want to do it. Um, it led to a divorce. So, you know, the, the, these are the questions where, 
a, a, a jurist worth their salt cares about people and doesn't want people to suffer. That's the, if you don't care about people, then don't enter into the field of jurisprudence. The natural inclination is that I don't want people to suffer. But my boundaries are the boundaries that Allah gives me. And I am willing to explore these boundaries to mitigate the suffering as much as I can. And that's my obligation as a jurist. So I don't see anything in the revealed sources that talk to me about feet or fe pregnancy fetish. But I know, but Allah has given me principles of justice and principles of modesty. And within those principles are the boundaries that I navigate my exploration of the divine will. So just, you know, keep that in mind. And, and at, a, at a different time, we, we, we will talk about the, 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 how intimate and private sexuality is because a lot of people think that sexual preference is a decisive element in deciding what's wrong and what's wrong. And that's not true. Sexual preference is not a decisive element in deciding what's wrong and what's right and wrong. Not every sexual preference could be accommodated or should be accommodated. And not all suffering that results from sexual preference obligates a change in taklif or creates an obligation for accommodation for legal accommodation. But we'll leave that to another session, inshallah. Alhamdulillah. So I think I've pushed it as much as I can. <laughs> I'm, 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 I've, I think I'm worn out. Okay. So. <laughs> Thank you. It was amazing, as always. Alhamdulillah. Thank you, everybody, for, for joining us. For, for just the, the people, inshallah, who will be joining us on the Quran, um, those who I will interact with, inshallah, those who get who I can observe their faces and ask questions. If Allah wills and this thing takes off and we are able to do it, by the end of it, you would have gone through a journey with the Quran where you've basically experienced every surah of the Quran. How, why it was revealed, how it was revealed, and what the surah, at least in my opinion, aims to achieve, the objective of the surah. So it, it is like taking a journey through the Quran from beginning to end. That in that, we are not going to be talking about tafsir because this is, and here I will say that this is largely the result of my own journey with the Quran and my own ishtihad with the Quran. And I might be wrong about everything I say from beginning to end. 
And because, you know, of my obsession about being wrong, I, you know, I share with Grace tidbits here and there of, and I try to see, um, but for whatever it's worth, that is something that has occupied me now for 30 years. And subhanAllah, it's, it's only certain circumstances that have evolved in, in life that has made me feel that, okay, you either take this to your grave or you unload it. And if you take it to your grave, are you going to be able to defend taking it to your grave? And I don't... The arguments against defending taking it to my grave have become very difficult. So then I must unload it. And to unload it, I must find a way to unload it. Um... A teacher, the quality of a teacher, it's exactly like a, a some a, you know, a, a, a performer who, a, a, a violinist who performs a concerto, or a pianist who performs a concerto or a symphony. The quality of their performance often is a is is a result of the dynamic they have with the audience the aura they have with the audience. You know, there are a lot of virtuosos that say, oh, this audience left me very inspired. And different situations say, this audience were like dead fish. I, you know, I, I felt uninspired. I don't like my performance. It, doing halaqa is very much like that. You are inspired by the people who you read. And of course, as Grace said, I can't read your auras because you're not in my physical presence. So I have to just uh, settle for something else. I pray that 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 uh, uh, somehow uh, you know Allah presents us with a miracle effectively, so that I can unload this. Um, I just don't know how to do it if I'm teaching. Teaching two courses a semester with everything else you do when you're teaching just doesn't leave you with the type of energy. Maybe if I if I if my health was different, maybe I would be able to do it. But there are very serious limitations. And... So... Pray, pray with me. Pray with us. Work to try and make it happen, inshallah. Inshallah. Ya Rab. Ya Rab. Okay, so this... Ya Allah bless you all and barakallah fikum wa afakum Muhammad kum ya Rabbana alami. Thank you so much, everybody, for being with us, and we will see you inshallah Friday